Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Also, just to say this week's episode was recorded in early March and obviously a lot has changed in the past few weeks. We felt putting out last week's episode with Christian Ruby was more timely, but we hope that doesn't detract from what is a fascinating conversation this week. If you missed our chat with Christian, do go back and have a listen. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston. With me once again are Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau of the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, how are you? Good morning. Thank you. We are fine. Quite a week and it's only Wednesday. Absolutely. Yeah, I know the feeling. Uh, in today's episode, we are looking into Europe's need to decarbonize heating. Uh, as much of Europe's heating relies on carbon-emitting forms of generation, it forms a major part of the energy transition, and work is underway to electrify and clean up the sector. Joining us on What Matters Today are two experts to talk about how we can cut heating emissions. Firstly, Alex Chambry is Vice President of Global Public Affairs and Sustainability at Weissmann, a German manufacturer of heating and cooling systems, and Brian Van Madison. Professor of Smart Energy Systems at Aalborg University in Denmark. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Uh, Alex, firstly, given the current uh, geopolitical situation and the fallout from Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, particularly in Germany, has the debate around decarbonization of heating heated up in the past few days, if you pardon the pun? Absolutely. So to, to have an an idea why it's heating up, uh, because uh, 50% of heating today is supplied by gas uh, and the Russian crisis, the Russian war in Ukraine has a huge impact on, uh, on the awareness that we have a huge dependency on gas uh, import that we have to tackle. This means that it puts suddenly uh, the building sector at the forefront of the political agenda uh, and uh, with a lot of policy debates on how to... Um, quickly reduce the gas dependency to Russia and what roles buildings can play uh, in this, uh, in this um, new uh, heated objective. What is also very prominent in the, in the debate is that the climate transition, the climate goals and the EU and German uh, transition policies towards energy transition and, and clean energy is actually uh, a policy that has to be pursued because it is the number one way to reduce gas dependency. Alex, could I ask a follow-up question? Um, what exactly is being discussed? Is there any specific sort of changes uh, to to the sort of policy on on heating and building specifically that are you know, already being looked at by the German government, or is this is this too early to say what will actually happen? It's a bit too early to know for sure what will happen. What we know is that in the, in the coalition treaty, you know, after the election, the, the winning parties agree on a, on a sort of a pro political program that they want to implement in the next years. And if you look at what is inside the coalition treaty on heating, you already have far 
fan, uh, I mean, important measures to decarbonize heating. So one thing is for sure is that every measure that is that are in the coalition treaty for the decarbonization of heating will be implemented for sure. Uh, there were some doubts. Will it truly happen? I, I believe that today nobody has any more doubts that what is in the coalition treaty will have to be implemented without delay. What is new on top is how can we go further? And just maybe for, for the people who are listening, the objectives are really already very high. So we talk about achieving a 50% renewable energy share in heating within 10 years, so by 2030. And we talk, uh, and there are already some very disruptive measures that are including included in the coalition treaty, like the, the most important one is the, the requirement that from 2025 onwards, uh, new heating uh, systems has to be to have at least 65% renewable energy. The, uh, the German heat pump market last year, um, when the figures came out, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, has actually expanded already by um, more than 150,000 units uh, for the first time installed in a single year. Um, but clearly, you know, with those kinds of uh, goals that you described, Alex, that needs to increase even further. And I guess the question that people ask is, how quickly can we scale those solutions that uh, move us away from using fossil fuels? Absolutely. Brian, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on what are the sort of the key pathways? Then? We've spoken a bit about Germany already. Uh, how are things looking in Denmark? How do we how do we clean up other forms of um, heating systems? And are heat pumps the answer or are there alternatives? The level of natural gas dependency uh, in the heating sector is extremely uh, concerning. It has been concerning for many of us that worked in the area for years, but now we highlight it. I would say the worst possible scenario for why it is so concerning that we're so depending on uh, one source of energy for our heating system, which is a critical uh, for infrastructure for society, really. And uh, I get a bit concerned about this individualization of these solutions. And I'm I'm not agreeing completely with what what we have uh, have been discussing so far. I believe that the Commission is not taking enough responsibility for lifting the heating sector out of its deadlock into natural gas. And I also believe that a lot of stakeholders around Brussels are so focused on heat pumps uh, and uh, and short-term individual solutions that you forget the overall picture. Uh, no, the fact of the matter is that uh, almost 100% of the heat demand in houses can be covered by excess heat from industry. And we're expecting that excess heat to increase uh, as we get more data centers, as we get more power to X, as we also explore possibilities for geothermal renewable energy sources. So I find it concerning that we don't have this focus and I believe the Commission has to have a completely different approach. I guess a lot of listeners and, and you know about the IFCAI uh, processes, which is sort of the, 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 the post-corona subsidies or investment strategies for each country. Before that, we also had the, the PCI lists focusing on natural gas and electricity infrastructure. But uh, I really lack a focus on 
supporting countries to build out the district heating systems. And uh, I believe that it's more important, in my opinion, to have a good long-term strategy than to immediately reduce uh, the natural gas dependency in uh, individual houses. And one of the conclusions that, that we have from our research is that in Europe, we need to start up to 8,000 new district heating grids uh, before 2030. And it would be very timely of the commission to say, we are able to, for example, support 20% of the initial investment costs if you have a rollout plan for the next 10, 20 years for the district heating in new areas. And I think this, this kind of thinking is really lacking from, from the whole debate and the whole policy making. Uh, of course, we need heat pumps. Clearly, we need a lot of heat pumps. But let's take a, a city like Brussels. The complete dependency on natural gas is, is, is vast. But if we switch to heat pumps, even hybrid heat pumps, we are going to have massive investments needed in the electricity grid. And this is something that we need to consider when we then look at the solutions. And the solutions are that in a city like Brussels, we need a massive rollout of district heating, not a massive rollout of heat pumps. But outside Brussels, we need heat pumps. Our studies clearly show vast amounts of waste heat at least 50% potential for district heating in Europe as a whole. Uh, for Germany, as an example, uh, we've also located around 50% for, for that country. Italy, it's a bit more. Hungary, it's a bit lower. But this is sort of a, a key thing I'm, I'm really missing, especially in this emergency we're, we're in. Briad, now I have to come in because here yeah. you partly touched what I always felt when I was working in the commission, but also partly touched my pride because maybe it's not so bad. And I was, so just a little bit to explain, I totally agree with you that there is no systemic uh, addressing of heating. And in a way, what was done for heating, Alex, you will also remember we had we had the product regulations, then we indirectly regulated it with this strong focus on the gas internal market, which obviously in a sector like heating creates maybe an inherent bias. And then we had a renewables directive, which as we know, basically just resulted in a massive uptake of bioenergy, but not really more systemic solutions. Huh? Um, but the reason for that was that it was always considered an area where member states should have the prerogative. That was always the problem. We could do a lot of things in the internal market, but on heating, we couldn't. Um, that also didn't change when security of supply became an issue in 2014, you know, with this uh, energy uh, union strategy. And then even now during the negotiations, you see the same reflexes of the member states. The commission wants to do minimally stricter requirements on heating, push back. So now I wonder, we heard from Alex at the beginning that she said, this is a whole new discussion now. All of a sudden, buildings, which in the commission's definition of energy infrastructure were not, but actually they are. 
they are part of the energy infrastructure, come to the fore. So I wonder, what do you think? Um, will this finally be the moment that we can have the systemic discussions? And just in defense, the commission made a lot of effort, actually, for example, to push member states to look at district heating in their recovery plans. Huh? So there were you know, they did push for covering this when if a member state hadn't covered that before, they were pushing into such directions because that was exactly what such money could be used for, where you need a little bit more governmental steer. So um, I would expect this to be scaled up. Michelle, I, I agree with you that that this decade will be the decade of, of uh, systemic change. And, uh, and, uh, and I also agree with Brian, we, we need to have a systemic uh, an, uh, overview of the entire system. I agree that in the previous decade that this was not well understood. Um, the, the interconnection between electricity, gas, uh, heating, uh, uh, district energy, and so on. I believe that now in 2022, that the policy debate and also the knowledge base has made a big, big uh, step change uh, that we have understood the, the need to think in sector coupling, sector integration and, and the system. Um, I see good signs like in, in the existing energy and climate framework, um, you now have the obligation for, for member states to uh, draft uh, national energy and climate plans, right? You also have a new system that says that the, the 2030 climate targets, the greenhouse gas reduction targets, that they have to be monitored on a yearly basis. Every year, each and every member states have to check, are we on track? Are we within the corridor uh, of a greenhouse gas reduction? And what are the measures that we take to reach that corridor? So I think the, the, the current legislative framework is much better than it was 10 years ago, right? With an obligation for member states and local authorities to think in system. Now, of course, we can tell it's not enough. We need to do more. Uh, what, what we keep saying in my, in my industry is that, especially for the decarbonization of heating in buildings, that this systemic perspective is absolutely critical. Of course, you're right that the that, uh, EU has done really quite a lot in the last 10 years on this. And I can actually see that on the ground, there's quite a lot happening, even in, in countries where, where you have no district heating, like in the, the Netherlands, they're exploring different uh, regulatory setups and uh, they will fall somewhere close to the Danish setup because otherwise they're not gonna have any Danish district heating for, for many reasons, but mainly due to, to uh, profit margins and uh, trust in the systems. But I think the EU could do much better. Uh, I think you can make task force for investigating buildings in the member state level. Uh, you can uh, make task force for multi-level governance structures. You can push for uh, better and more comprehensive assessments. You, you're already doing that. You have the, the demand for each country to actually assess the heat markets. So it is being done, but you can continue to push for better ones. The, the EPDB uh, regulation uh, directives are having a building focus and the, even they're mixing up renewables with energy efficiency, which is completely out of order. You need to push for a strong building or envelope regulation and then on another directive push for 
uh, cost-effective renewables. But you can also push uh, for making frameworks and and uh, making uh, uh, making the individual member states having frameworks for what kind of regulatory structures do you have around private public uh, ownerships of, of, of these things. So I think there's really a lot you can do, but not least you can support that from the EU without mingling with the individual independency of the member states. You can do support mechanisms like that. We know we have that in many other areas. It's just something that you're not, the EU is not touching upon here. Coming back to the systemic level, uh, if we're doing a heat pump only strategy, what will happen is we are going to be depending on a lot of power plants. And what are you going to put into those power plants when you have two weeks or months of really cold weather? Well, there's fossil fuels and then there's bioenergy. That's what you can put in. And, and this is really the concerning part. Uh, but also what is concerning is that you need to build up a massive infrastructure that you're only going to need when it's really cold. Uh, and this brings me then into what the alternatives are. If, if we look at a renewable energy system, there's a lot of misconceptions about what we need uh, and what we need to develop. We, in my opinion, already have the storage options we need until 2030. There's no need for new inventions until 2030. What we need to do is use those storage options that we have in a lot of areas. And, and, and uh, uh, an example is that if, if, you, if you compare the cost of electricity storage in, in one of the cheapest sort of ways to store electricity, which is pumped hydro, you pump water up and then you take it out again when, when it rolls down with the generator. That's maybe around 100 euros per kilowatt hour so, or something like that, maybe a bit more. If you compare that to uh, storing a kilowatt hour of, of hot water, the difference in, in large hot water storages are, uh, is a factor of 100. 100. And then people will, will sort of tell me, well, you, you can't run a... A, a, a factory on hot water and you can't uh, watch TV or charge your phone on hot water. That is completely true, but it is for sure the case that we will need hot water also in 2050, also in 2030 to heat our houses and to go have a shower, hopefully. <laughs> so the, the point here is that you have an intermediate between the renewables and the end demand, and that intermediate can be energy storage in hot water. And just to complicate things slightly <laughs> here, again, if you make a smaller electricity storage than a pumped hydro, then you triple the, the costs more or less of, of per kilowatt hour. So if you go to a power wall Tesla Powerwall or these individual solar PV battery solutions, they are really counterproductive for the transition that we're in. But then you triple the price. Uh, then you maybe up to 250 euros per kilowatt hour, so 300. And then you can compare that to an individual heat storage. That's then a bit cheaper. Maybe that's 80 or 90 
uh, euros per kilowatt hour. Now, a lot of numbers, I know, sorry. Uh, but the, the, the fact of the matter is the bigger on electricity and heat that you store, the cheaper. If you look at the individual solutions, people will say, well, you have resilience in buildings. That's what it's called. Or you say you have flexibility in buildings. They can turn off their heating and turn, turn on their heating. That is true. They can do that a couple of hours, maybe half a day if it's not too cold. That is true. But to invest in a really large storage that helps the system on an individual basis is not an option. It's not possible. There's not enough space. It's too expensive. That means that this flexibility in buildings can help really short term. But when we have no wind, it's not going to help. And we don't have any PV, it's not going to help. Those people who invested in PV with a battery, they can't even help the system. So, so there's a lot of sort of feel-good solutions out there, but they are not a do-good solution. And they won't, I mean, solve the sort of more overall systemic um, security of supply issues and renewables uh, integration issues. I, I don't feel super well with the feel-good solutions. I think it's not fair for all the people who invest in PV and so on. I think we need them. I agree that don't solve the energy of supply, uh, the security of energy supply problem in winter, but we need them. We need massive rollout of PV across Europe, and, and we need a, a combination of all the solutions to, re to reach net zero. Another thing on energy storage, I agree that, yes, um, uh, water storage, uh, district energy is part of the, of the basket of solutions that we need. But even in the most op optimistic projections, like from your heat and power, we see maybe a doubling of the of district energy grids. You, you said there is an even higher potential, but we don't believe that we will see 100% of district energy grid uh, across Europe, right? So, so next to, to district energy, uh, we think that uh, the a very important uh, storage uh, solution is uh, hydrogen, of course. Uh, it's a big, big topic now. You can store uh, solar energy via electrolysis um, in, in green hydrogen. And, and now there are huge investments ongoing uh, across Europe to accelerate basically the storage of uh, of uh, solar energy into green hydrogen that you can then use in winter times. Uh, and I think this is another very important solution that we have to, um, to consider. Well, you can, I like that you produce green hydrogen and you use it in the winter, but I hope you don't use it for heating. Well, there, um, Michela, so we have, I know we, we don't share the exact same uh, perspective and it's fine. The, the transition is super complex. What we believe at Fisman is that in a 2050 decarbonized world, that there will be different solutions in a different ecosystem locally, depending on the choice of the local authorities or regions and their specific ecosystems. So we think that in some regions, some cities or mayors will go for full uh, district energy, as Brian was saying, maybe Brussels. In other so, uh, regions, maybe I just visited last week a small uh, village in um, in the Netherlands, where they are very close to a wind a windmill, a very big windmill uh, 
you know, which produce uh, renewable energy, which is producing in excess. So they are considering for this specific uh, heat demand of their village to use the extra uh, electricity from the windmills for hydrogen generation that they could use to, to meet their heat demand in winter. So I think it, it's really a, a local decision depending on the specificities of the ecosystem. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. I think Ian once said um, in a Euroactive article many years ago, um, heating with hydrogen is like forcing people who can't afford a car to buy a limousine. Um, I think that's what you said, Brian. Um, uh, do, do you still hold that view or has your view changed um, in, in, uh, over the years? Um, and and if, yeah, if, if you still hold that view, right. could you explain uh, why you said that? And um, uh, what the issue is with hydrogen for heating in, in your view? Well, you, you would be a bit bold here and say that uh, it's not really a view. It's a, it's a matter of fact that it's only going to be extremely wealthy, rich areas of, uh, that, that would be able to have such a solution. And uh, we need a lot of hydrogen in Europe. And uh, you're completely right, Alex, that we can use hydrogen as a storage medium not to produce heat with hydrogen, not to produce electricity with hydrogen, but to produce fuels for our aviation sector and shipping sector, because there are no other good solutions for that. And uh, if we start to use hydrogen in heating, then we will impose quite a lot of extra costs for those that are buying it. But you also have a, a, a rather silly uh, uh, energy efficiency loss in, in that you're, you're using infrastructure to basically create 40, 50 degree hot water. That, that is, uh, if, if, if not, uh, you could call it crazy, but you could also put a lot of other words on it. It would be, in my opinion, completely irresponsible uh, because that kind of energy that we're losing there can go directly, directly to reduce our dependency on Russian gas and in general, our dependency on fossil fuels and bioenergy. We need other solutions than that. I don't think we need a ban on it uh, but I th because it's, it's going to be so costly that nobody's going to do it. Unfortunately, there have been grants to support buildup of such infrastructure. But once those grants are gone, they are going to find other solutions. It's not a matter of my opinion. It's a matter of costs and it's a matter of physics. Uh, and Exactly. So allow me, a matter of cost and physics, we, we, ha we might have a, a slightly different view. So in every... I'm sorry, but the physics in, are sorry, the same 20, here as they are in Brussels. In 2050, <laughs> in 2050, Almost every energy modeling show that there will be a remaining demand of gas in heating in buildings. 
You want, in a net zero world, you want this remaining gas demand to be 100% decarbonized because there is today no close to no model which assume 100% phase out of gas in 2050. Huh? The reducing of the energy demand will be the number one driver. So we, every projection says that we'll see at least a halving of the final energy demand in buildings. So we are already talking for half less of energy demand. Second, we see an increased share of district energy. So maybe from 12 to 20% 20 in 2050, that often uh, the, what we usually say. And then a, a high electrification of buildings. So maybe 50%. And then it means that you will have a, a dramatic uh, reduction in the gas demand in, in buildings for sure, as I said increase of district heating, increase of electrification, reduction of final heat demand thanks to energy efficiency measures. So we are talking of, of a much smaller sh uh, volume share of gas, and this remaining share has to be decarbonized. And, and when you speak about cost, if you go for a 100% electrification scenario, this, is, this high seasonality of the heating demand and the security of supply has to be has to be met in a 100% elect electrification scenario, building on uh, overdimensioning of the system, maybe nuclear energy, by the way, because uh, to assure base load, you, uh, if you don't have a hydrogen, then you need you need nuclear, and the green certainly don't want it, right? So the, the costs are higher than if you allow a small share of gas, for example, in hybrid systems to function. You can have a hybrid system with a, a heat pump functioning the, the vast majority of the time. You can start, as I said, with a five kilowatt heat pump in a normal family home. You can already reach 60% of the heating demand. If you insulate gradually the home, the, share, the supply of heat from the heat pump can increase to 80% and then later even 100%. But the advantage of, of hybrid solutions is that the, 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 the gas boiler can allow to achieve, to meet this peak demand in winter time when you are below, uh, below zero, for example, and when you have a, a, a problem of, of supply. So instead of running big power plants that you use only a few days uh, per, per, per year, you, you have a more resilient system thanks to hybrid solutions. And what we know for sure is that uh, a smart utilization of molecules with with electrons reduces the total, including, uh, by the way, also uh, district energy on top, reduces the total energy system cost. And that's also a fact in physics. Agora did some modeling. We modeled, uh, we modeled the rate pass for net zero for Germany for 45, which then was the basis of the legal changes that were adopted last year. We have an ongoing modeling exercise on the role of gas in each sector, because I think that's the next step that we start to see the role of gas in each sector. And it's very clear, there is no role for unabated gas anymore in heating buildings. It has to be phased out fully in the early 2040s. We see a little bit of role for things that you mentioned, like hydrogen, to support big district heating system. But there is absolutely no way we could afford heating an individual home, either with hydrogen, and frankly, the same is 
the same story is true for bioenergy. Both bioenergy and hydrogen are such scarce fuels that we need to use them, Briad said it earlier on, to fuel a plane or something, but definitely not a home. That's And that was pre-Ukraine modeling. We are revisiting now, obviously, because the uh, Agora Energiewende scenarios did count with quite a big share of gas for decarbonizing industry, like the steel sector. But we are reassessing to what extent that bridge we thought would still be there for hydrogen is actually still there uh, and will reassess those scenarios and it will definitely not increase. You know, it will definitely not make it more likely that we heat our homes with hydrogen. I think we can agree that we disagree and that's fine, right? Uh, what, what, I like this setup yes, with two people. It's perfect. Thank you so much, uh, everyone, for this really interesting debate. I'm sure we can do another hour on hydrogen alone, uh, let alone uh, all the other uh, issues that are facing the sector right now. Uh, one thing before we go, uh, I'd just like to um, ha- maybe hear a little bit of uh, what Alex and Brian think um, the energy sector of the future may look like in, say, 10, 20 years' time. If they could look into their crystal balls, what's the energy system look like in, in a couple of decades' time? Uh, Brian, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so I think I'll, I'll just start by saying a bit about Denmark. I didn't have a chance to do that and then come back into your question there. In Denmark, more than 3.5 million people have district heating, so it's around 60%, uh, something like that. We just created something called Heat Plan Denmark 2021, and we sort of documented that it's feasible to go to 70% district heating, uh, which means that those last we, we we actually have we're both a natural gas and district heating country as opposed to many people what many people think <laughs> so of course the current crisis in ukraine uh, war in ukraine uh, is also sparking a debate that was already there because of the high energy prices uh, we have around 400,000 households with uh, natural gas but in the danish system and in the danish context People are calling up district heating companies to get district heating. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because they trust the systems and because they know that that regulatory framework, well, they don't know it's a regulatory framework, but they know that that kind of supply is also a, a a, a price security for them. And, uh, um, so that's just to say a bit about what's what's going on here, sort of very very briefly. There's a lot of other things, of course, but uh, also on heating. But in in general, we don't do projections; we do scenarios. I don't see any scenario where we have any kind of gas in heating in 2050, and probably, hopefully, earlier than that. Um, if I should let's say, look in a crystal ball, that's another thing than what I model. Just to make that clear, (laughs) my crystal ball would say that on the energy efficiency side, we will fail to to, to, to reach anything close to what is in the 1.5 tech scenarios from the commission. That's the sort of 100% 
decarbonize system. We are going to fail that, and it, it doesn't matter. It's okay that we fail that energy efficiency level because it's so extremely high to expect uh, almost 50% of the end demand to be reduced in buildings. It, it Physically, it's hard. Economically, it's crazy. It just to bring that up as well. But to go for what is called the baseline or the reference, which is somewhere around 40%, that is, in my opinion, a realistic level. When I then look at a crystal ball, are we going to reach that realistic level? I don't, I don't think so. I think we're going to reach, if we're lucky, 30% in demand reduction because the policies, as also Alex explained, is extremely hard. We know private economically is feasible to do a lot of things, but on the ground, it's not happened. That means subsidies are needed to break the ice here. And I think having a climate crisis and a war in Europe can also help a lot in creating some policies. On the supply side for heating, uh, I will expect much more than 20% district heating uh, by, 20, by 2040. Uh, I would I would expect that we're closer to 35 or 40 percent, um, and and uh, I could probably model that we could get further. So it's not sort of any ideal situation or anything that that is rational or logic. But I can see that on the ground when I talk to people in different countries around Europe that that this is what is being pushed and this is what is being prioritized because. There are local heat sources, and as a local community, you can see that you can decarbonize quite a lot and also have kind of a local circular economy system that makes sense in a local setting. And and I do expect that to come both because of this top-down from the EU national level that can be pushed, as we talked about before, but mainly actually because this will enable a bottom-up approach for initiatives. And it's really, you have to understand that EU level and national level has to enable local initiatives. They don't have, they shouldn't force it. They should enable it. Financing mechanism, regulatory framework, all of that. And I do expect we can reach uh, uh, some, somewhere around maybe 35% of, of district heating by, by 2040. Absolutely. Alex, uh, briefly, uh, what does your crystal ball look like in 10 to 20 years' time? What does the energy market look like? Uh, so I, I'd like to start with people, uh, because if we want to succeed the energy transition, we need to combine the decarbonization of the energy system with better lives and better comfort for people. So I would I would start with people and say in 20 years, we'll, find, we'll see better sm homes, smart homes, where people live in a much better indoor environment with much better indoor air quality, not only in homes, but also at work and in schools. And the better indoor quality and temperature will, will uh, increase their productivity, their well-being, their health. Uh, people uh, at schools, uh, young children at schools, will we, we, we learn faster, we'll calculate faster because of the good indoor environment. And this, this uh, have massive um, positive impact on, on the European health, right, and comfort. So I would start with that. And we as a heating manufacturer, it's our duty to deliver 
this combination of improved comfort with decarbonization. Then we'll see in 20 years, close to every home will have an electric passenger car, right? And meaning that we will have um, homes will be turned into into uh, smart homes in micro power plants. I hope we'll see massive rollout of PV on the roofs with home energy management systems, which allow the home to optimize uh, when they charge their vehicle, when they hit their home, when they have to postpone the heat demand because maybe the energy system uh, needs a, a bit of demand side response. So we'll see far more flexible, smart energy management management in, in, in heating and, and smart controls roll out across Europe, which will optimize the energy consumption in real, in real time. Then on the energy system, we believe we see a mix of district energy, decarbonized green gases, energy efficiency, and of course, a, a, a far uh, increase of the share of, of uh, heat pumps. Absolutely. That sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, your insights on the, on the debate uh, this week. I'm sure, as I said, we could go on uh, for a lot longer. Um, just finally then, before we go, I'd like to go around the table uh, and ask uh, what caught your eye this week? Um, anything that really stuck with you? Jan, uh, what caught your eye this week? So there was an article by Bill McKibben, who is um, a pretty well-known US environmentalist. Um, and uh, he's written a piece saying, should, um, or he actually said the US should ship heat pumps to Europe to you know, make sure we get rid of res Russian gas for heating. Um, and yeah, I'm still sort of trying to work out what I make of that. But I think what I found interesting about the piece was uh, that this has really changed our thinking in terms of the scale of change that is needed. And it reminded me a bit of the Marshall Plan. Um, yeah, we need something much bolder than just incrementalism and whether or not we should ship heat pumps is a, is a separate question to that. I think the interesting um, point that I think he made is that this is a pretty monumental moment in, in our recent European history and we should really do a rethink of, of how we approach energy um, and make it an infrastructure priority, uh, strategic priority to especially tackle buildings. Um, and uh, that's that's why I think uh, it caught my eye because I, I felt it was bold, it was different to the usual incrementalist approach that we see. Absolutely. Uh, Brian, uh, what caught your eye this week? Well, as for many people, a lot of things caught my eye, I would say. I think one of the major stories that I'm building in, in my head at least from all, all of, uh, all of this that's going on is that mm, a lot of people will know how the European Union was created on steel and coal. And uh, it was actually about an independency and it was about collaboration. And you could say the early days of the internal market. I think in many ways we forgot about collaboration and remembered only the internal market and and all of the principles that we are prone to have transparency and fair competitions is certainly something we should not forget and we have to with also also uphold that also in a crisis situation if possible but i think we forgot some of the other things we forgot that independence also means that we have to have medical supplies in Europe, we have to have medicine in Europe, 
we have to have key technologies, materials, access to those in order to be self-sufficient. But also during the last year uh, in the, this energy price crisis that has rolled into a war on the European continent, I, I think it must be clear for everybody now that energy independence is important. And, uh, and we have to remember why we collaborated in Europe uh, when we when we exited the Second World War, so I think that's sort of the grand the grand story here, really that I'm seeing. And uh, Robert Habeck actually expressed it. I think it was him, uh, Freiheitsenergie, that's renewable energy, and and this is very very true in my opinion. Absolutely, uh, Alex, uh, what caught your eye this week? So be- besides the war, right? What has caught my eye is um, the IPCC report, which was published on Monday, and especially the analysis, uh, I mean, the the facts on on Russia, because the IPCC report uh, on Monday showed what are the consequences of of, uh, climate change across the world. And you have a a deep dive on Russia, which shows that the, the global warming will have enormous dramatic impact on Russia, just for example, because of the, of the melting of the permafrost, right? And you have major infrastructure cities that are built on permafrost in Russia. And with the melting of the permafrost, the soil breaks down and it would mean, it could mean the, the collapse of massive infrastructure, costing, you know, the life and the, the whole wealth of millions of Russian people. And what, what makes me extremely sad is that to think about the, the enormous amount of investment that Putin made to finance this war instead of investing in the re- resilience of its economy. Yeah, absolutely ter- uh, terrible times indeed. Uh, Michaela, uh, finally then, uh, what caught your eye this week? I can be brief because it. I saw the same in all the flow of information that we had referred to and that also previously Jan referred to and he said incremental is not enough anymore. And I think the German discussion over the last week was just amazing. It was actually the liberal finance minister who called the renewables energy, the freedom energy, which makes it even more surprising um, because it was traditionally a party that was actually more skeptical and always you know, too much support scheme because they always thought, uh, you know, markets should work. That makes it even more uh, revolutionary. And uh, Habeck was quoted saying that at this point in time, going on installing gas-based heating systems is just not opportune, is just not the thing to do anymore. And I think these two things just basically describe very well uh, that there is a real change in thinking going on in this country uh, for foreign policy in general, but also for what we were discussing today, approaching heating. Absolutely. Uh, just finally, f- uh, from me then, um, I the thing that caught my eye this week, it's another offshore wind story. It's kind of my uh, little uh, pet uh, <laughs> pet subject, but it was the uh, offshore wind auction in the US, actually, uh, a recent um, uh, auction of areas just off the uh, New York and New Jersey coastline there drew $4.37 billion in uh, bids from developers. Um, so a massive windfall for local 
governments there. Um, and just to go to show how rapid that turnaround has been in the US offshore market, um, merely just maybe three or four years ago, areas of the offshore um, offshore space went un, unbidded. People didn't bid into them. They just thought it wasn't uh, feasible at that time. And now they're raking in uh, yeah several billion dollars of investment uh, from developers who want to build these massive offshore wind farms uh, off the US. So I think it's just a fantastic opportunity and really exciting market uh, happening over there. And some really big names as well, Shell, RWE, British, Britain's National Grid are part of it, um, EDP Renewables, NG, you know, all of the really big names in offshore wind uh, are really interested in this. Um, I think it's a fascinating thing. They just need to start building, uh, which is, I think, uh, another topic uh, for another day. Um, but thank you so much for everyone's uh, insight today. Um, that's all we have time for. My thanks to uh, Brian, Alex, Jan, and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast or ideas for future episodes, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Alex? At Alex Chambris. Brian? Yeah, at uh, Brian Vett. Michaela? At Citizen Sane One. And Jan? Hey, Jan uh, perfect. Uh, we can. You can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again very soon.